And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, April 25th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the rest of fiscal 2023 is shaping up to be an extra rocky time for contractors. Plus, this year's list of high-risk federal programs shows once again what's possible. We'll hear from Comptroller General Gene Dodaro. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, after five years of work, the Defense Department appears to be making progress on modernizing software acquisition. For evidence, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Margaret Boatner, at a recent AFC event. And Alex, what progress did she say they're making, actually? Well, what she said is the biggest leap forward they've made is the establishment of the software acquisition pathway. It was first established by Congress in fiscal year 2020 in the NDAA, and it's an acquisition path specific to the development of software. Uh, it's the, te- the technology development cycles are more accelerated. Requirements have to be written faster. The whole timeline has to be condensed before the technology, the software to- technology, actually becomes outdated. And it allows for operating outside the traditional requirements process of acquisition to make all that happen. Here's Margaret Boatner. Uh, by using this pathway, right, we, we are able to operate outside of the traditional requirements process and the traditional acquisition process. There's also streamlined documentation and review uh, requirements to start a program on this pathway. And if any of you all have spent any time in in the traditional acquisition system at all, uh, you'll know that developing and staffing any of these documents uh, is a very significant time driver in, in, in the overall acquisition timeline. It sounds like her whole objective here, or at least part of the objective, is to get time out of this so it speeds up the process? I think time is so critical because suddenly when you're talking about not tanks but actual software, if you spend three years trying to get it right, there will be new software out there and what you're doing is no longer that useful. So some of the changes they're trying to make are the way the paperwork is handled. She talked about going from three years to one year to write requirements. And the software pathway requires the release of a viable product within a year and then annual releases after that. She points out that in the past, it's taken the depart- the Defense Department years to do what industry can do in weeks. And she says they're starting to move faster. Here's Margaret Boatner. And really, the objective of the software pathway specifically is to move us away from the, the linear waterfall approach uh, to a more integrated and agile, modern approach to software, really recognizing that, that technology development cycles are, are more accelerated in these software systems than they are in our hardware systems, uh, and our processes need to allow for that. All right, so maybe year-long scrums that they can get down to two weeks with some practice in a few years after that. And Alex, let me ask you about a second program of Army acquisition you mentioned earlier. That's also getting off the ground. That's right, Tom. It's the Army's Intellectual Property Expert Cell. And it's designed to be an interface between contracting officers and industry. The rules for intellectual property have been kind of all over the place. And actually, it scares some smaller businesses because there's a 
perception that there's government overreach when it comes to IP. There needs to be sort of custom licensing and acquisition so that the needs of specific companies are met in terms of their secret sauce, what it is they've got, and making sure they don't have to give away all their secrets. One of the big problems is getting contracting officers the information they need to be able to make informed decisions about IP licensing. And here's Margaret Boatner again. Broadly, what the cell is supposed to do is provide that dedicated advice, assistance, uh, and resources to the acquisition workforce, but also importantly to our industry partners on all IP matters. Uh, and so they're going to have a couple of uh, key tasks. First, you know, working directly with our program and contracting offices so that we can develop these thoughtful IP strategies that I've, that I've just uh, talked about, right? It's this hands-on expertise. And she mentioned industry partners there, and the experts sell is supposed to help them. How does that work? That's right. Uh, Boatner mentioned three issues that cause problems with IP in the acquisition process. Aside from contract officers not having enough understanding and knowledge of the issues, there's a continued reluctance on the part of industry to enter the defense acquisition system for IP-related reasons, specifically that issue of overreach. And then the third is just a lack of clarity about the process. For smaller companies specifically, they're just kind of not sure what to expect when they start working with the government. Here's what Margaret Boatner had to say about it. I, I meet with small businesses and non-traditionals who are concerned about what we're asking for from IP, and they just want to have a conversation, but they don't know who to reach out to. There's nobody that they can reach out and touch to ask these kinds of questions to. Um, whereas our primes, you know, again, I, the DOD process is complex and opaque, but our primes can often reach in a little bit easier, um, have some more established relationships in some of our small business and some of our, our non-traditionals. So basically, they want a way of making sure that small vendors understand that their intellectual property is not simply going to be ripped off if they do business with the government. If you boil it down, sounds like she's saying. That's right. And the other thing is that the bigger companies, the primes, are a little bit more savvy about the, the system. And also, they want to win. So they're making sort of liberal rules in their contracts about what can happen with the IP. And that makes the subcontractors a little nervous. Well, that kind of runs contrary to what is happening in all of these so-called innovation cells. You know, that was an expert cell, but in innovation, they want to get people quickly into the pipeline, get their products deployed as fast as possible, some non-traditional types of vendors. And the supposition there is that those vendors will be able to use the same or already are using the same intellectual property or the same products not licensed to the government already in the commercial sector. And there's simply a way of applying it to the military. So that's two different models really here that are going. And one derives from the innovation side and one derives from the pure acquisition side. That's what I sense going on here. I think you're right. And I think the idea is to make it work for small businesses and to address their concerns and create some kind of some kind of communication. Because at the end of the day, they need to get products out and they can't do it if people are feeling hesitant because they feel like the system isn't going to treat them well. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this year's list of high-risk programs shows once again what's possible. We'll hear from Comptroller General Gene Dodaro. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
The biannual list of high-risk federal programs published last week by the Government Accountability Office is both promising and discouraging. It shows that more appropriations can help and also that money is not always the answer to improving programs. As we do every two years when the list comes out, we get executive analysis from the man who runs the GAO, Comptroller General Gene Dodaro. Mr. Dodaro, good to have you back. Always good to be with you, Tom. And I feel like you should be Dr. Dodaro. You're kind of like the kindly, knowledgeable, bedside doctor to federal agencies. You don't spare the truth, but you don't hit them over the head with it either. Well, it's important to be constructive, Tom. I mean, there's a lot of serious problems that need to be dealt with. You need to be clear and candid with people, but you need to be understanding and making sure that you're doing everything you can to try to help them improve their performance for the benefit of the American people. And let's talk about a couple of the items that did get removed this year, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation and the 2020 Census. I think those show kind of what I said at the beginning, is that sometimes a little bit more money helps from Congress, but sometimes it's just sheer managerial know-how that gets you through a situation. In the PBGC case, it definitely was the money appropriated from the Congress. The multi-employer pension part of that program was due to be insolvent in 2026. The latest estimates in Congress provided enough funding that, according to the current projections of PBGC, will extend that program through the 2050 time frame. And the single employer part of it has been getting better on its own. So that's been better management, as you point out. But the PBGC now rates the risk of insolvency for both programs to be extremely low for the next 15 years. So it doesn't solve the long-term problems that they have, but for now, we're going to take them off the list. And just because they're off the list, they're not out of sight. So we'll keep an eye on them going forward. Census clearly was a good management exercise. They've kept the cost down from growing exponentially as it had been with prior decennials. They implemented the first internet response option for people and using in some administrative records. They effectively dealt with the cybersecurity recommendations that we and the Department of Homeland Security had put forward. And so they'll continue to be challenged as we run up to the 2030 census. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. And if we need to add them back to the list. And of course, 16 areas, as you mentioned to Congress, have improved. And without running through the details of all the 16, what are the themes there? for people to maybe not get off the list, but at least step closer to the doorway out of it? Actually, in a number of cases, there are two pivotal parts to get started on the path to coming off the high-risk list. One is sustained leadership commitment, and a number of them exhibited that. And this is particularly important, Tom, as there's changes in administration. If you recall, our last update was 2021, just as this administration was coming into office. So it's important and many of these issues, as you know, have been on for a long time. So it's important that that commitment be sustained across administrations. Secondly, detailed action plans that really get to the root cause of this situation. And that is very important. We saw a number of meaningful efforts to come up with better action plans going forward. This is particularly true with the Veterans Administration. And so you know, I was very pleased with both the leadership commitment and the action plans. And Now it's a matter of following through and executing it. It's getting to the hard part, but unless you have those two prerequisites, you really don't make much progress. 
We're speaking with Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. And let's talk for a moment about the two item, or three items that got added. Here again, Bureau of Prisons, there's a big money issue there, but also some managerial problems. The unemployment insurance fraud was really discouraging, and I know GAO has had several reports on that, as have some of the inspectors general that you kind of work in parallel with. And all of this fraud, as you pointed out, yes, the COVID response accelerated the fraud, maybe by an order of magnitude, but it was not an unknown problem before then. And then, of course, HHS response to public health emergencies, that kind of underlied many, many of the issues agencies have faced over the past couple of years. Absolutely. I'll start with that one first on the HHS area. We've seen over the last decade that they've struggled with providing adequate leadership and efforts to respond to various public health emergencies and to coordinate the federal response. There's been problems with clarity and roles and responsibilities among federal agencies with federal governments, state and local governments. There's been not effective communication, clear and consistent information to the public. There's been data collection issues that have made it more difficult to target the response rate. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, I added it to the list to keep it visible to the Congress and the public as the pandemic fades or emergency parts of it fade. You know, sometimes not enough attention is given to be in a better position next time. And I think we're a long way from being in a better position to deal with the next public health emergency. So that's important that we stay focused on that as a country. On the unemployment insurance area, you're exactly right. You know, we estimated that at the low end of fraud, at least $60 billion of fraud in the unemployment insurance program. We're working on a higher end estimate right now. But in addition to the fraud and improper payments issue, which you were right, it was there before, but it was magnified during the pandemic because of all the money and the new programs. But also, we found problems with timely delivery of benefits to eligible people, legitimate people. And there were some questions about equity based upon racial lines. And the program is, at the state level, antiquated IT systems that are not really meant to serve the modern federal workforce. And, of course, the workforce has changed itself in the dynamic. So it needs broad-based transformation to deal with these range of issues. And then the Bureau of Prisons, we saw for a number of years, they were having some leadership challenges. They had six different directors in six different years. The current director, Colette Peters, is committed to addressing these problems. I've met with her. But there's staffing challenges. Their use of overtime has grown. They're understaffed. They can have issues in terms of safety, both for the inmates and for the staff. And then they have a big challenge in trying to prevent recidivism. Their last estimates are 45% of the inmate population were back in prison after a few years of being released. And so there's a number of programs, including the First Step Act, to try to get them to be uh, you know, more successful in preventing that and help inmates make successful transitions back into society. And on the BOP issue, I have spoken to your director on that issue, Greta Goodwin. And one of the questions I asked her, and this gets almost to the philosophical level, is that Yes, some of the people incarcerated by the Bureau of Prisons from some easy camp for elderly, you know, white-collar prisoners all the way to the Supermax at Florence, Colorado. Yes, they are some of the worst members of society, but when they become incarcerated, they also become among the most vulnerable. Kind of an irony there. And 
in some ways it's a reflection of the entire government and maybe society as to how those people get treated, given that incarceration itself is pretty bad punishment. They should not suffer physical abuse, et cetera, the things that happen under incarceration beyond the fact of incarceration, and nor should the people that care for them have to be in danger. Absolutely. And that's one of the issues that I decided to put them on a higher list for. You know, there's health care issues because there's aging in the inmate population as well. And there's issues of safety. You know, so there's medical care. There's issues helping people recover from drug abuse. There's uh, all sorts of different challenges, and they are vulnerable. And the goal is to rehabilitate people to be better members of society when they're released from their punishment. And so this is a big challenge the Bureau of Prisons has. I mean, it's a tough issue dealing with these issues and things that have built up over time with these individuals. So it's very appropriate. It's our goal. And we want to make sure that we try to help them be in the best position possible to keep their staff and their inmates safe and also to meet their rehabilitation goals. My guest is Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, and I want to talk about the Defense Department. Some of the problems there have been on the high-risk list, I think, since it was inaugurated back in 1990, including acquisition of weapons programs and so on, and there's never been a shortage of efforts to try to address that. But I wondered if you felt that the Ukraine situation and the granting of all of this equipment and ammunition that has been flowing to Ukraine has brought those problems into sharper relief. Well, I think that the question of replenishing the supplies that we've been providing to the Ukraine will be an issue that we're going to be looking at, Tom. We have a separate mandate from Congress to provide oversight over the agency's provision of assistance to the Ukraine, whether it's military assistance, humanitarian assistance, etc. So we'll be looking at those issues. But as you point out, a number of issues have been longstanding at the department. And so they need to be addressed, you know, along with uh, repercussions from providing the assistance uh, to the Ukraine. So we'll be keeping an eye on both, you know, whether they're getting to the root cause of some of these problems and executing good action plans. I've been pleased with the commitment of the department and their cooperation. And uh, I've had discussions about that with their leadership. And looking forward to some, hopefully, some additional progress of them. As you recall, maybe last time we met, you know, we've taken a couple of DOD areas off the high-risk list. So I was pleased with their progress before in the supply chain management and the infrastructure areas. So they're working on these other issues. Some of them are very difficult, the weapon systems acquisition in the financial management area in particular. So we'll see how things go going forward. Uh, But we'll be keeping an eye on the Ukraine situation as well. Because there have been a couple of high-level commissions. One was called the Section 809 Commission, and it had to do with the name of the section that authorized it in the NDAA a few years back, and they were looking at acquisition issues. And then there's another commission that is just turning in reports on PPBE, what they call program budget execution, that whole process, which dates back many, many years, decades, really. And so it seems like if they could act on what is the recommendations before them from their own commissions and their own study groups, they could make a lot of progress. You're exactly right. I think there are two fundamental tensions that occur within DOD. One is you have large, complex problems that need discipline systems management, acquisition management approaches, 
and to mature technologies before you put them into production, for example, and to have good business cases. The other tension, though, is you have this enormous pressure to meet and stay with the competition from adversarial nations. And that pressure ultimately drives some decisions to move forward faster than discipline management practices would take you in that area. And so those two tensions always create challenges within the department. And so better management practices can help. They can make better decisions early on. But this competition from near-peer countries is not to be underestimated as a force guiding their decision-making. Yeah, everywhere you look, there are stimuli that have brought to light some of these problems, whether it was COVID and HHS and Ukraine now and competition for DOD. In the U.S. financial regulatory system, modernization, that was one of the items that was cited. And here we had Silicon Valley Bank, which is really still unfolding in many ways. And there's a lot of controversy over the response by the FDIC to it, whether it was the best deal for taxpayers. And then the whole Bitcoin FTX deal kind of sucked in a lot of banking with it. And so what's your sense of how that can make some progress? Again, yeah. a very old issue. Yeah, no, no, that's brought the uh, financial modernization area into uh, you know more vivid relief now that uh, since the uh, time we put it on during the global financial crisis back in 2009. And we're looking now at the Silicon Valley bank situation and the signature bank situation. We'll have our first report out at the end of this week in those areas. And we have a statutory obligation. If regulators make a systemic risk determination to go in and look at that and advise Congress what happened there. We also, Tom, gain additional responsibilities to audit the Federal Reserve emergency lending facilities during the global financial crisis. We needed that authority. Congress responded to my request positively there in order to audit the troubled asset relief program there because the Federal Reserve was backing up some of Treasury's activities. And then we've received a bipartisan request from the Congress to look at what happened in Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. So we'll be looking at it. And we've also received another request to look more broadly at the bank examination and supervision process. And all that will bring us back into looking and focusing in on the high-risk area of financial modernization. We're speaking with Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. And in some sense, GAO has been saying the entire government enterprise is a high-risk unto itself because of the non-sustainability of the fiscal situation. That's a little separate study than the high-risk list. But do you worry that, you know, every time there's a trillion-dollar response to something and they're talking about, you know, there's new trillion-dollar programs being contemplated, who knows whether they'll pass politically? But does that cause you pause when you think that the debts are mounting and we're not getting closer to some sort of sustainable fiscal path, even though it might happen program by program individually? The overall fiscal health of the federal government is a concern. You know, I've regularly for the last uh, six years issued an annual report on the fiscal health of the federal government and come to the conclusion that it's on a long-term unsustainable fiscal path. There's a structural issue there in terms of the imbalance between revenues and expenditures that was there before the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, and now the pandemic. Those extraordinary events have added to the debt and to this fundamental problem, which is largely being driven by demographics as our society is aging and rising health care costs. 
and then soon to be rivaled by the increase in interest costs to service our debt. So our latest report, Tom, will be out next month. And in those reports, I've called for a plan to put the federal government a roadmap, if you will, on a path to long-term sustainability. But we need to have some goals, guidelines as how much debt do we want to have as a percent of gross domestic product, for example, and how would we get there to constrain those things while still allowing ourselves to be responsive to global and domestic emergencies. I've also called for changes in how we deal with the debt ceiling. The way we do it right now is really not an optimal approach, and it could lead to extreme difficulties, and I'm you know, concerned about that. I have been, and I hope that once we get through this most recent episode that we can get to a more rational way of setting our debt at the time we make appropriation decisions and not have it bifurcated and create potential turmoil in the markets. And I wanted to ask you, too, on that regard, you are about to reach your 50th anniversary in June of serving in the federal government. That is pretty rare, a 50-year career. You hear a lot about a lot of 30-year careers and 40-year careers, and yet you have managed not to become a Jeremiah when it comes to some of these issues. But as I said at the outset, more of a kindly bedside doctor who nevertheless has to give bad news. What keeps your equanimity in all of this when the problems just go on for generations and seem, in some cases, to be accelerating? Tom, I joined the federal government because I wanted to provide public service. I didn't want to become somebody to just complain about government and not get in the game and to be able to make good, positive outcomes. You know, when we get together, we talk a lot about the high risk list and the problems, but GAO generates tremendous benefits for the federal government. I mean, we've achieved a lot of improvements. The last five years, for example, we've got tens of billions of dollars in financial savings, $145 back for every dollar invested in GAO. The high-risk program, for example, over the last 17 years has saved $675 billion. I've talked to you before about the overlap, duplication, fragmentation. That's over a trillion dollars in savings. So, there is a lot of job satisfaction with improvements that are made in the government that comes with this job. But our job largely is to keep the country and Congress focused on challenges and emerging issues. And so, therefore, we spend a lot of time on this. But I have three children, seven grandchildren, and eighth on the way. I want to make the country better and leave it better than from my uh, stint in, in government. And so that keeps me motivated, plus working with the tremendous people over here at GAO that we have, and one of the best talented, most dedicated workforces in the world. So I'm happy, Tom. I'm uh, you know, looking forward to the rest of my term here at GAO and uh, to continue to help our country. And in that regard, yes, you actually got applause from one of the committees you were testifying for, I think it was the Senate, that uh, they don't applaud too many witnesses, but citing GAO for its repeated being the best mid-sized agency to work for. And we should remind people that you don't have to do the FEV survey as a congressional agency, but you do it voluntarily. No, I think it's important to continue to hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold others to when we audit people. So we try to implement leading practices at GAO. And it's important that we have our employees engaged and try to be the best uh, workplace that we could be because better motivated people produce better results, and then we have a better chance of achieving our mission in the most effective and efficient manner. 
Gene Dodaro is Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Tom. Best wishes to you. And we'll post this interview along with links to the High Risk List Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep the Federal Drive high on your personal list. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the rest of fiscal 2023 is shaping up to be an extra rocky time for contractors. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The usual uncertainty over budget negotiations coupled with the debt ceiling brinksmanship means contractors should be highly prepared. This as federal spending continues to set records. We get one view of the situation from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And yeah, the uh, brinkmanship, even, you know, some of the major newspapers are starting to say, hmm, give us your view of how the debt ceiling crisis could affect contracting. Tom, I think that this debt ceiling crisis is going to have a more immediate impact on contractors than many people think, and it's going to have more immediate impact on government agencies than many people think, and that is because agencies have to plan as if their operations will be affected. I think we talked previously about continuity of operations, and that's certainly something that is increasingly a focus the closer we get to a purported deadline on when we will reach the debt ceiling as a country and what that might mean in case we don't have a deal in place to fix that. So I think if you're a government contractor, you want to anticipate a slowdown in business. You also want to anticipate whether or not you might get paid on projects, at least paid in a timely manner. If there is a debt default, I think, Tom, like many crises in government, this one is going to last right up until the last possible minute. We saw the House Republicans come out last week with the first salvo in what they think a deal might want to look like. And it's important to understand that that just really is the first salvo. It's kind of like if you're in the football game, that's the first drive of the game after the kickoff. And, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And even if it put points on the board, it's usually not going to be the final points in the game. So there's going to be other plans, uh, we hope. We hope there will be other proposals. Right now, the administration and others that are involved in these discussions haven't really come up with a counterproposal yet. Maybe we'll see some of that this week. So far, the counterproposal has just been no cuts. Well, I think everybody understands that a debt ceiling extension that comes with no cuts in any sort of domestic spending is as much of a non-starter as perhaps portions of the plan unveiled last week by House Republicans. Right. Then with the debt ceiling actually looming, the government will have to pay itself, its employees, and those obligations first. Contracting obligations would be second in line if they thought they really had to stop spending in a dramatic way. It's almost like throwing a monkey wrench into an operating engine. You can get it to stop quickly, but you can't get it going again that fast. That's exactly right. That's a really good analogy. So what happens to the extent that we know, because remember, we've never actually had a debt ceiling default before, but mandatory spending, that is spending for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things of that nature, that will continue. And that's a lot of spending. But that means there are fewer dollars left over for so-called discretionary spending. Those are the dollars that go to pay government contractors for work performed. 
And even inside there, Tom, there will be a hierarchy. All of the things that are deemed imperative to support national security, they will most likely get a higher priority for payment than more routine acquisitions of commercial items and services. Now, if you're a small business listening to this and you think, hey, that could affect my ability to get paid on time, you're probably right, unless you're performing on one of the intelligence community or high-level national defense projects. You know, this is a thing that could disproportionately hit small businesses, Tom, who really need the cash flow, but aren't always providing those things that are at the top echelon of what the government needs to meet its missions. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And I wanted to ask you about some figures that have come out from Bloomberg that you're reporting on, and they have kind of outlined the shape of the current spending in information technology and general government. And I guess we knew that the services portion was on the rise, but now they've delineated just how big services are as a component of federal spending. Tom, I thought that this was interesting. We haven't talked about this in the media for a while now. Ten years ago, there was, I think, much more steady tracking on what the percentage of federal IT spend was every year in proportion to total federal contract spending. So Bloomberg came out recently and said, look, when you look at the information technology spend and the professional services spend together, those two areas alone account for 26 percent of non-classified government spending every year. That's a significant part of the government acquisition budget. When you think about all the missiles, boats, and planes that the government buys every year, which are usually very large ticket items, to have professional services and IT come up to that level, that's pretty significant. What it really tells people is that professional services are indeed as ubiquitous as you might think they are. I've said before that government agencies can't go to war, can't process benefits checks, can't maintain their IT without contractors. These numbers underscore those types of things, Tom. I think maybe a potential surprise that there's so much being spent on IT in terms of modernization and also supporting projects that are already in place. Well, that gives contractors or would-be contractors a kind of roadmap of where the growth is. And I wonder what effect that phenomenon has on mergers and acquisitions. Well, we've certainly seen a lot of merger and acquisition activity in the IT and professional spaces lately, Tom. You never know in this marketplace, there's always a certain amount of activity. But I will tell you that the Allen Federal phone has started to ring much more often in the last 90 days from people who are looking for companies to buy, whether it's a company that has a certain contract vehicle or whether it's a company that's looking for somebody with a certain socioeconomic status. It's not empirical for sure, but we already have some decent M&A activity going on in the market that's being chronicled. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And I think people are looking at this for a couple of reasons. One, they certainly want to strike while the iron's hot and leverage relationships that the companies that they're looking at might have, because that's very important. But two, Tom, is I think some people might realize that we may very well be at or near the top in terms of annual federal contract spending for a little while. It's nice to think as a contractor that it goes continually up, but history shows that it does not. 
So one way to get some extra business now and protect yourself in any downtime is by consolidating resources. Although it makes it difficult, I think, to evaluate in some ways, because when you buy a services company, you're buying people, you're buying a body shop, and people are a lot more prone to coming and going and departing than if you buy a company that has a factory and machinery and a definitive product that you know is going to be in demand, something, you know, a piece of hard product. You raise an excellent point. I think you always have to be concerned as a buyer of a professional services company that you're going to have the main people, the critical core, come with you when you buy it. And that's what any buyer wants to see. They want to see that the talent that they think they're getting is actually going to be part of the deal. But coming into these discussions now in federal is this whole discussion of doing away with non-compete agreements, which makes it easier for one person to leave one company and go somewhere else. It makes it harder for the company to say, yes, if you want you know, Jerry Jones to be part of the deal, we can make sure that Jerry you know, has a non-compete and that we raise his pay. So the likelihood that Jerry will stay, it will be good. And that's the type of stuff that used to always work. But now Jerry Jones has a lot more portability options. And that makes valuating professional companies much more risky. Uh, another way that people look at it, though, Tom, is by looking at existing contracts and existing projects, the size, scope, the likelihood of those being sustainable over some period of time. That's still going to stay there. And for companies that have that good install base and have the good relationships, they're still going to be very viable takeover targets. Did you use Jerry Jones as a made-up name because you're subliminally a fan of the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, absolutely not, because I just didn't want to use the name Dan Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Larry Allen, who is really Larry Allen, is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. <laughs> as always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, be sure to join Federal News Network's inaugural Customer Experience Exchange. Starting Thursday, two afternoons of federal and industry insight on how to achieve better service to constituents and your own employees. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Department of Veterans Affairs, for the third time in five years, is putting all future deployments of its new electronic health record on hold. The VA says it won't bring the Oracle Cerner EHR to new sites until facilities already using the system show improvement. The VA is in negotiations with Oracle Cerner for a renewed contract that would hold the vendor accountable for systems outages. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And Jory, why are they hitting the pause now? Any particular event that happened? Not any particular event, but it's just been a series of events that keep happening. The EHR has been encountering, as you said in your lead, Tom, these outages, these persistent outages that keep happening, sometimes within the VA, sometimes more broadly across DOD and the Coast Guard as well. There have just been training and functionality problems that have frustrated VA employees. There have been some instances of VA clinicians quitting their jobs and leaving the agency as a result. And there's just been a number of cases documented by the Inspector General's Office of veterans seeing a degradation in care. There have been some patient safety issues. And what 
we've heard from Congress at this point is that there have been some fatalities that have been linked to some functionality of the ER. And we've heard as much from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. He said in a statement that the Oracle Cerner EHR is not meeting expectations. And so that is why that reset needs to happen. We heard more specifically from Neil Evans, who's the Acting Program Executive Director of VA's EHR Modernization Integration Office. He says that those go lives are going to be on an indefinite pause until they get to the bottom of what's going on here. We at VA have been listening to veterans and we've been listening to our frontline clinicians, specifically our frontline clinicians at the five sites that are alive with the new electronic health record. And it's clear that the new EHR is not meeting their expectations. It's not meeting my expectations either. What does VA need to see to resume the go lives? I guess not crashing and not killing people. More specifically, they're looking at what Dr. Evans said a moment ago is that they're looking to see a better improvement from the sites already using this. This is five sites across the country that already have that Oracle Cerner EHR running. The vast majority of them have not seen a better performance since that go live. They are worse off performance wise than they were pre go live. And so that's the thing that they're really going to need to see change. And that's going to mean better reliability, fewer or none of those outages, as well as better ratings from clinicians and better ratings from veteran patients. Now, they have had these pauses before. This one is more permanent, more comprehensive, and it comes in the context of these renegotiations then. Is that the big difference now? Well, the big difference is that they do have a way forward and a better understanding of what the root issues are. We did see last month a report from the task force working on these issues. They have identified four key issues and about 14 fixes that need to be done in the short to long term. Some of these are going to be later this year. Some of those fixes might be beyond this year. What we've seen in the past is a pause on go lives in July 2021. And we saw a pause just last fall. And so that sprint report is really the key difference. And that's what Everett says is going to be the difference going forward. I would argue that what we're talking about here with this reset is really an extension of that assess and address period. And how it is different is the commitment to really do the addressing. That is execution focus and the focus on the field. And while he's saying all of this, Jory, the reaction from Congress is getting tougher and tougher, isn't it? Yeah, and they have rallied around uh, a number of bills to address this uh, persistent challenge with the EHR. There were about four bills circulating between the House and Senate VA committees. What we did see is that the House VA committee, both the Democrats and the Republicans, were rallying around a Senate bill that would do actually what we're seeing now, that the VA would not move forward on new EHRs until those five sites actually show improvement. That's the core of that legislation lawmakers were rallying around. And what we've heard from those lawmakers is that they're generally happy that this is happening and that the VA is taking the time that they need to get to the bottom of this and ensure that future go lives are more productive. So they really need a couple of things. One, the outages to stop. It has to stay up because an EHR has to be up 100% of the time. But they also have to see quality and functionality improvements so that people don't quit over how bad it is or there is not this threat that a bad clinical outcome could occur as a result of it. Right. What lawmakers are looking for out of this is what the VA has said from the get-go here, which is that it's going to lead to better outcomes for patients. And so far, we haven't seen that happen. All right. And what does the company say? What does Oracle Cerner 
say about this? Well, we heard from Oracle Cerner's that they do support this plan by the VA to have this pause of go lives and that they are working with the VA to uh, deal with those underlying issues, deal with those fixes that I mentioned earlier in the Sprint report. And as you did say in the lead time, the VA and Oracle Cerner are back at the negotiating table for a renewal and contract terms. And the VA specifically looking at terms that would hold the vendor accountable for these downtimes, these degradations in the EHR, and making sure that that doesn't happen. Well, Larry Ellison's Oracle has done a lot of acquisitions over the years. I wonder if they regret this particular one of Cerner. I want to ask you also about the DOD, which the Defense Department also rolled out over time, mostly rolled out, the same essential product, because the idea was they would be compatible, the VA and the Defense Department, over their electronic health record. It's going better at DOD though, isn't it? It is going so much better than what we've seen from the VA at this point. DOD is about 75% complete with that implementation of the Oracle Cerner EHR currently, and they're expected to be 100% done by next year, by the end of fiscal 2024. And that's the question on everyone's mind at this point. Why is this going so much better at DOD than at VA? What we heard from Evans is that DOD had its own hiccups with the initial deployment of the Oracle Cerner EHR, and that's where they think that the VA is currently, and they hope to, at some point, get to where they are able to really pick up the pace of Go Lives and do this not just one at a time, but to do this at multiple sites all at once and really get to a point where this is a viable solution. Yeah, get a bulletproof version and then roll it out fast, scale fast. Yeah, that's the current hope. Okay, well, we wish them well in that. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman. 